Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. It's great to see you all here this morning. We're going to try and move through this message quickly. Uh, Our brother Jim Silvera has something very exciting that he wants to share with you after the message. So the close will take uh, a bit more extended form. It might go 8 to 12 minutes. But I'm hoping to land the plane in plenty of time for you all to be out of here on time. You know, we don't want to be slaves to the clock, but it's understandable. Some of you drive a long distance. You make afternoon plans with with family, and and it impacts them. So I'll try to land the plane quickly. Uh, I'll give a shorter introduction this time, uh, cut out some illustrations. I I think we'll have you out of here easily by 12 noon. So this passage that our brother Joe read for us today, the entire passage comprises the fifth and final warning in the book of Hebrews. It follows right on the heels of the passage we preached from last week, the first 13 verses. And in there at the end, of it, the writer makes very clear to the original readers, the recipients of his letter, Jews who had professed salvation in Jesus Christ, they turned from the obsolete system of Judaism with the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices, its priesthood, It was obsolete because it was all fulfilled in Christ. It all looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And Christ fulfilled it all, and the law was done away with. The sacrifices and the priesthood being part of that law. They turned from that, and they embraced Christ. Because of persecution, some of them had left and gone back to Judaism to avoid persecution. Others were tempted to turn away. And the writer tells them that it's going to be out of the frying pan of persecution and into the fire of God's chastisement of his children. For any who were true believers and were tempted to turn away, they were not going to escape trouble in this life because God would chasten his children, any who were truly his. And after finishing with that, he now again warns them all that God will one day judge. The title of today's message is Hold Fast to Christ because of the consequences of not holding fast. And there are consequences that the writer is going to make plain. In this passage, Jesus is revealed as the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. And God is revealed as a consuming fire and the judge of all. Both of these will come into play with consequences of not holding fast and the blessing of holding fast. If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. God wants you to value the inheritance, the eternal inheritance in heaven that he has for all who trust in Christ for salvation. And know that one day 
God will be your judge. In this passage, the writer deals with why and how to hold fast to Christ and your Christian faith. We're going to look at it under three headings. Hold fast to Christ to one day see the Lord, in order to one day see the Lord. This is why. This is one of the whys. He begins with a why, he'll end with a why, and the how is in the middle. It's almost like a sandwich. It's almost like the whys are bookends to the how. It's like a sandwich. The whys are slices of bread, and the how is what's ever in the middle of the sandwich. How? Uh, hold fast in order to one day see the Lord. How to hold fast? Hold fast by remembering. And we'll see what it is the writer wants us to remember. And then why again? Hold fast because of the consequences of not holding fast. So let's get right into his first treatment of why it is important to hold fast and not to turn away. Hold fast in order to one day see the Lord. How should we hold fast? Pursue peace with all men. This is how he begins this warning section. With a warning about pursuing peace. This word pursue is a very, very strong, active word. In some contexts, it would even be translated persecute. Persecute. And he chooses this word because his readers knew the Greek language very well, even though they were Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews who had turned to Christianity. They understood they were being persecuted for their faith. And he uses the very word that conjured up the persecution they were receiving for their faith. Here, pursue is a better way to translate it, but it still conjures up that image of persecution that they would turn away from. The idea of pursue would be used of one who was chasing a, one, a runaway slave or someone chasing a criminal. The picture is of reaching out to grab the one that is running away, apprehend the one that is attempting to escape. He says we should pursue peace in this way. We should strain out, hoping to grab it, hoping to lay hold on it. Don't let it get away. This is powerful. He's stressing this. Pursue peace with all men. Not just some, but with all. Pursue peace even with those who were persecuting them. Pursue peace with those who had abandoned the faith, turned away from Christ, and went back to Judaism. Peace is so important. Why? At least four times in the epistles, Paul twice, the writer to the Hebrews, who may be Paul, again in Peter once, they call God the God of peace. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, what's called the Prince of Peace. Peace is something that characterizes God. The theological term that's used in Scripture and by theologians is reconciliation. Reconcile. Make peace between two parties. Paul writing to the Colossians says, Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace. 
if there is not peaceful interpersonal relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ and with others, the warning words that are about to follow that finish out this verse would certainly then apply to anyone who does not have this characteristic of God and of Christ and the Holy Spirit. After all, one aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace, love, joy, peace, Galatians 5.22 and 23. Peace is something that characterizes God. And he wants all of his children to show forth that peace. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, pursue peace, the same word. Pursue peace and the things which make for the building up or the edification of one another. But Paul, you don't understand. Brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or this co-worker of mine, a neighbor, an extended family member, I try so hard to make peace with them. And they just refuse. They keep on attacking me. They don't want peace. We've all known people who are like that. Even in a local church, they don't want peace. Paul, writing in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, says this, As far as possible, as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We can't control the other person. If there's a person who lacks this God-like, Christ-like characteristic, who lacks this fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace. They lack it. They don't want any part of it. They reject it. We can't, we can't control them. We can't make them want peace. In fact, they're already rebelling against the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. If they rebel against the Holy Spirit's conviction to be at peace with you, they're going to rebel against your olive branch, your offering of peace to them. As far as possible, as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Leave the other individual who doesn't want peace, leave them to the Holy Spirit. You can hold fast to Christ through personal holiness. The whole verse is there, but he brings out this second point. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue not just peace, but sanctification, personal holiness. Remember I explained to you when you see the word sanctification, you need to understand is that sanctification the initial proclamation of sanctification that God has declared us righteous, that he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? Is it past sanctification that we are now set apart to serve God like the holy vessels and furniture of the tabernacle were sanctified, set apart, sanctified by blood to serve God? Or is it the present aspect, the experiential, ongoing, progressive aspect, whereby more and more we become Christ-like in our thinking, in our desires, in our attitude, in our motives, in our words, in our deeds. This continues on throughout our, our entire life. None of us ever achieves 
perfection in this life? Or is it ultimate, final, complete sanctification? When we see Christ face to face, as John says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here, based on the context, the pursuing of peace and what follows in the next verse, it would seem that sanctification here is the present aspect of sanctification, our behavior. This is different than the writer uses it earlier in the epistle, but it would seem from the immediate context of pursuing peace and dealing with roots of bitterness, anger, unresolved anger, that he's talking about sanctification as the progressive ongoing present sanctification in the life of the believer becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. He says without this aspect of holiness, the word sanctification has to do with holiness. Without this, no one will see the Lord. If your life is devoid of Christ-likeness, it is an indication that you will not see the Lord. He says it right here. It's an indication that you are not a child of God at all. The child of God wants to pursue sanctification. It's an object. They don't want it to escape. They want to lay hold of sanctification. Maybe you recognize sin in your life. And that's a good thing. Don't be discouraged by that. Make that an object of prayer to have victory, to overcome, pursue it. Don't give up. Follow hard after it. Run after it. Don't let it escape. Let this be a consuming passion and a desire of yours to be like Jesus Christ. Hold fast through Christ through personal holiness. Hold fast to Christ by avoiding bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness is unresolved anger. It's anger that you just won't let go of. Maybe it's not seen. Here, he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Did you realize that you and I can fall short of the grace of God? The problem is not that the grace of God isn't offered. It's not the that the grace of God isn't there. It's not that God doesn't want to extend grace, but we fall short of it. Here, one way we short, fall short of it is through bitterness, holding on to our anger, not having a forgiving spirit. What did Jesus Christ say? Therefore, you are to forgive just as your Father in heaven forgave you. Forgiveness is another characteristic of God. We are to be like God in that way. We should have our father's eyes. You've heard that expression. Oh, look at that cute little baby. He or she has her father's eyes. We should have our father's spiritual eyes. There should be something about us that resembles him. And forgiveness is one of the things that so characterizes God. 
He's forgiven us of our sins when we trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, forgiving us. Christ even said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when he hung on the cross. Forgiveness is one of the things that characterizes God. You look at all the arguing, all the fighting, all the battles, all the wars in this world throughout history, even down to this day. It shows how unforgiving man is, but God wants us to be forgiving. When we do not forgive the others and we dwell in anger, that anger becomes bitterness. The anger can be seen. It's like the dandelion, that yellow flower. You've seen it in your lawn. And you mow it down, and the next week it's up. You mow it again, and it comes up. The root is bitterness. You have to destroy the root. Otherwise, it'll keep on popping up again. He says, see to it that there be no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled whenever you see a problem that spreads spreads amongst a family or an extended family or in the workplace or in the local church affecting the church you know there has been a root of bitterness unresolved conflict an unforgiving spirit that harbors this anger under the surface. The face may smile, but their heart is not with you. Proverbs mentions that. It's a facade. There is this anger that an unforgiving person just will not let go of. If that describes you, be afraid because that is not a characteristic of God or Christ. And one day it will spring up and cause trouble, causing much defilement. He just said, pursue holiness, pursue sanctification. Defilement is the opposite of that. Hold fast to Christ by avoiding bitterness. Hold fast to Christ by having a forgiving spirit. Just as God forgave you, so also should you, the scripture says, forgive others. Hold fast to Christ knowing that how you live reveals what you believe. He says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. How we live always speaks volumes about what we believe. We can't see what another person believes, but we can see how they live. Notice how he connected immoral, which can be seen how one lives, the decisions they make, and he's going to bring out a very key decision in a moment about Esau. He connects immoral with godless. How we live reveals what we believe. It, in other words, it's not our talk that speaks volumes, but our walk that speaks volumes. Our walk should always match our talk. Christ reserved his strongest words of rebuke for hypocrites. 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, he said. How you live reveals what you believe. How are we living today? What is the story that our life is telling others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family, the unsaved that we come in contact with? I've mentioned this before. Let me mention it again now. Do you know there's five Gospels? Now, you're probably thinking, why why doesn't the elders of security get them off the stage? There's only four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm not talking about one of those phony, fake Gospels written over 100 years after Christ died, written 25 or 50 years at the earliest after John died at the end of the first century. I'm not talking about the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter. I'm not talking about any of the 16 or so phony Gospels. I'm talking about your Gospel. I read this when I was a very young Christian. And for some reason, the the words stuck with me because they're, they're very, very powerful. This little poem goes like this. You are writing a gospel, a chapter a day. By deeds that you do, by words that you say, people read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is that gospel according to you? What is the gospel according to Paul Johnson? What is the gospel according to Fred Poulin? What is the gospel according to Gilson De Silva? What is the gospel according to each and every one of us? Is it faithless or is it true? Does it agree with the truths of Scripture? Hold fast to Christ by valuing God's future plans for you, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, he could have written, who plotted the murder of his brother Jacob, but he didn't. Uh, 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 Excuse me, I'm sorry. He didn't plot a murder there, but he sold his birthright of all the things that he could write about Esau. He writes this. How is this immoral? How is this godless? Hold fast to Christ by valuing God's future plans for you. The Jews rightly believe that God was sovereign over everything, that only what God has ordained, caused to be or allowed, would come to pass. They believe that if a woman didn't become pregnant, that was God's sovereign will. When she finally became pregnant... They believed that was God's will. The Lord closed the womb, the Lord opened the womb. The order in which children were born, whether it was a girl or a boy, and the order in which they were born were all ordained by a sovereign God. So Esau was one of two twins, Jacob and Esau. Their mother, Rebekah, was pregnant with twins. When it came time to give birth, Esau was born first, and right after him, 
holding the heel of Esau was Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. He had the birthright. According to the culture, the firstborn son would lead the family after the father's death. He would be in charge of the family clan. He would be the clan chieftain called a prince. He held power. He received a double portion of the inheritance, twice as much as any of the other sons would receive. Esau sold that birthright for a single meal. Remember in Genesis, he was out hunting all day in the hot heat of the sun, and he comes back in and Jacob had made a stew. And he says to Jacob, I'm about to die. Give me some of that stew. Now he doesn't collapse and needs to be resuscitated and nursed back to health. He was obviously exaggerating. Jacob, being ever the one looking out for himself, says to him, sell me your birthright. Esau says, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? Okay, you got the birthright. In other words, you now are as if you were the firstborn son. The blessing would be tied to the birthright. You couldn't give the blessing of the firstborn unless that person had the birthright. Esau sold his birthright. He sold all of God's future plans for him for a single meal. He sold every meal thereafter, every day thereafter, all of God's plans for him to lead the clan for a single meal. He didn't value God's future plans. How about you and I? Do we value God's future plans or are we willing to sacrifice it all for a moment of sinful pleasure, for a moment of sinful desire? God has such wonderful plans in store for every one of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Don't ever sell God's future plans for you. Paul says, see to it that no one robs you, but that you receive a full reward. Some of what Christ wants to reward us with, ideally, we might lose out on because we chose to sell our birthright for a single moment of sin. Remember what it said about Moses? He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Value God's future plans for you. Hold fast to Christ knowing that now is the time to value what he values. Now. Not in the future, now. For you know that even afterwards, after he sold the birthright for that bowl of stoof, for you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. As his father is about to die, he wants the blessing. But Jacob already received the blessing. Yes, he got it through deceit. The blessing was forfeited along with the birthright. 
We don't know at that point when he sold his birthright how Jacob would receive the blessing of the firstborn. We have no clue, but it would be through deception. And deceiving his father into thinking was Esau, Jacob gave the blessing of the firstborn. I mean, uh, Isaac gave the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob. And when Esau comes in after and he wants a blessing, his father says, I've already given it away. That was in God's sovereignty. God allowed that. Your brother has the blessing of the firstborn. And that's right because it goes along with the birthright. His way of getting it, deception, should not be copied. It shouldn't be emulated. It's not commendable. But the blessing goes with the birthright. And he was rejected. And he said to him, Father, isn't there anything left that you can do? And he gives him a a really mediocre, minor blessing. In fact, when you read the words, you're glad they're not uttered of you. Now is the time to value what God and Christ values. As far as salvation, if you're here today and you've never trusted in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the scriptures say, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not next week, not tomorrow, not even this afternoon. Now is the time of salvation. If you hear the Holy Spirit convicting your conscience, if you recognize that you are a sinner, if you understand that Christ paid the penalty on the cross for sins, underwent the wrath and judgment of God so that you would never have to, trust in him now. Have faith in him now. Call out to him for salvation. Do like the sinner did in Scripture. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Call out for his mercy. He will save you. Place your faith and trust in what he did on the cross, and he will save you. You will not be rejected like Esau was. Hold fast to Christ, knowing that at some point he will close the book on you. Regarding Esau, you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no room for repentance. Not his repentance, but Isaac to change his mind. He found no room for Isaac to repent or change his mind and give the firstborn blessing to Esau. Though he sought for it with tears, he wept, he cried, he entreated his father. Give me the blessing. But his father couldn't. There was no room for repentance. The book had been closed on Esau when he sold his birthright for a single meal. Everything else that followed, followed on from that one decision that he made. The scripture says it's appointed unto men to die once and after this comes the judgment. Not a second chance. Judgment. Now is the time to repent and turn to God for salvation. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come your own way to God. You need to come through Jesus Christ. 
now is the time to repent of your sin, repent of any plan you have to commend yourself to God, to earn God's salvation. Turn from that and turn to Christ and cry out because there will come a day and even though you repent then with tears, it'll be too late. God will close the book. How should we hold fast? Hold fast to Christ by remembering. Hold fast by remembering the magnificence of God in the past. We find that in Scripture. You may find some of God's magnificence in your own life as well. He says he's citing things that were in the past that primarily were at Mount Sinai when the law was given. For you have not come to a mountain, Mount Sinai, that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard them begged that no further word would be spoken to them. Read the account in Exodus 20 and uh, 19 and 20 and following in the chapters that follow. And God descended in all his glory on Mount Sinai. And he called the people to come near and they were afraid. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go up on the mountain and meet such an awesome, terrifying God. And they said to Moses, you go. And all that the Lord tells you, we will do. All that the Lord says we will do. Think about this God. He hasn't changed. He's the same God today. Yes, we don't see him as a flaming fire on a mountaintop. Our brother David, preaching to us from Hebrews 11, explains why. God has decided that faith, not sight, is what he wants from his children today. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he goes on in Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please him. Faith is what pleases God now. Faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the magnificence of God in the past. Perhaps you've had some displays of that in your own life as you walked with him. I, I, I know my wife and I have. God has blessed us not with dreams and visions and things that we could see and hear and touch, but the reality of his presence in ways that are so real it would be as if we could reach out and touch him. He is so magnificent, so awesome, so glorious. This is a living reality and ought to be a living reality in the life of everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. Remember the magnificence of God in the past. He reveals himself still in great ways in the present time. Hold fast by remembering God's holiness. This is a real incentive to hold fast. Remember, this is part of a warning. Why did he say pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord? Because God himself is holy. Referencing the Jews at Mount Sinai, 
They could not bear the command that even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. That's how holy God is. When his holy presence descended on the top of Mount Sinai, the whole mountain became holy, and even a beast could not touch the mountain or it would die. Remember when Moses wanted to see the glory of the Lord? Show me your glory. And the Lord said to him, no man may see my face and live. Remember John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1? He hears a voice behind him. He's, in, he's, in a, he's having a vision that the Lord has given him. He hears a voice behind him and he turns and he looks and he sees one like the Son of Man and he describes him. And part of it is his face shone like the sun and I fell at his feet like a dead man. God's holiness would slay us all, just like he told Moses. No one can see my face and live. But one day we will. When the Lord comes for us, takes us to be with himself, makes us like him, that day will we, we will see him. Brothers and sisters, always remember God's holiness. He is a holy God. He wants you and I to be holy. Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's God's standard. Make it an object of prayer to become more and more in perfect holiness like Jesus Christ. We'll never attain it in this life, but that should be our goal. Don't be satisfied with anything but the holiness of Jesus Christ in your life. Hold fast by remembering God's awesome majesty. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now he said this to the new generation about to enter the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But what he's talking about there, he tells them when he was on Mount Sinai, gone for 40 days, receiving the law. He, the children of Israel, they didn't know what happened to him. They tell Aaron, make a golden calf that, we may, that that may be our God and we will worship it. Moses comes down and he sees what's done and he smashes the tablets to the ground. God calls him back up after he deals with the idolatry, after he crushes that golden calf to powder. God calls him back up, and Moses sees the awesome sight of God again, and he's afraid that God is going to judge all those people, wipe them out, and form a new nation from Moses. The Lord even tells him that. And Moses pleads with the Lord, don't do that. Don't destroy them all. That, the judgment of God, the holiness of God that prompted God to say that he could judge all these people and destroy them is what made Moses full of fear and trembling. And that holiness of God was seen 
in the fire and the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai. Remember God's awesome majesty. It stems from his holiness, and his holiness is what makes judgment of sin necessary. Hold fast by remembering a superior mountain, a superior city and messengers. He says, but you have come to Mount Sion, the city of the living God. And all those who are tempted to turn back say, yes, we're going back to Mount Zion, to where Jerusalem, the literal city, is built. We're going back to that. That's what we're to. When we turn away from Christ, we're going to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. But he threw them a curveball. He tells them what the city of the living God is, not the earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. He had said regarding those great heroes of faith, they sought for a city, but not Jerusalem. They sought for a city whose architect and builder was God a city not made with human hands, a city that God made. He's referencing what he had already told them in Hebrews 11, a heavenly Jerusalem, a superior city, not on the earth but in heaven, and superior messengers, myriads of angels. The word angel means messenger. The Jews prided themselves on angelic messengers, they occurred sporadically in the Old Testament. But here it's myriads. It's not just a few. He's showing the superiority. Recall when our brother David opened the series on Hebrews, he spoke about how Jews almost idolized angelic messengers in the very first chapter. Better than the earthly angelic messengers, heaven is filled with them. He's contrasting the myriads of angels in heaven with the few that Scripture records came to the earth for one purpose or another. Hold fast by remembering a superior assembly, a superior location, superior access and accomplishment. He says, you have come to the general assembly, the festive gathering. In Leviticus 23, Moses writes about the seven high holy days of the Lord, the seven feasts of the Lord. The Jews, the Orthodox Jews, celebrate to this day seven high holy days. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which we've covered in Leviticus 16 at different points in our messages on Hebrews. That's the highest holy day, but there were six others, Passover being one of them. But you can read all about them in Leviticus 23. It's, they were festive gatherings. You have come to the general assembly or festive gathering and church of the firstborn. This is the church, the bride of Christ that the Father has given to the Son. Some of the church was already in heaven, having been martyred or died naturally. They were already in heaven. That's where the church of the firstborn is. It's not back in Judaism. The bride of the lamb is in heaven.
and will end up in heaven. Some of the bride is here, now, at any point in the church age, but it's also in heaven. Absent from the body and at home with the Lord, Paul says. You have come to the festive gathering in church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Your name, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, your name is written in heaven. And you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the Old Testament saints, those he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, who died before the church was born in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Hold fast by remembering a superior mediator and sacrifice. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took that cup and he said, take it and drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And they've come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood. Every year on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter the holy of holies and sprinkle blood seven times from his fingertip on the ark and the mercy seat. It's Christ's blood. It pictured Christ's blood that would take away the sins of the world. He says it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. This sort of begs the question, what did Abel's blood speak? He's basing it, his argument, that Christ's blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Remember in Genesis 4, after Cain slew Abel, God comes to him and he says to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, what? Am I my brother's babysitter? That's basically what he says. That's the tone he takes with God. Am I my brother's babysitter? And God says to him, the blood of your brother Abel cries to me from the ground. That's what it was speaking. It was crying to God from the ground. What did it cry? Let me suggest four things it cried. It cried betrayal. Cain lured Abel out to the field with the intention to murder him. Murder one, premeditated murder. Betrayal, brother slays brother. It cried out to him, murder, because Cain slew Abel. It cried out to him, vengeance. It wanted the Lord God to bring about vengeance. It cried out revenge. These are the things I would suggest to you the blood of Abel cried out. But Christ's blood speaks better things. What does the blood of Christ speak? The blood of Christ has purchased us. It satisfied God's holy requirements on our behalf. It justified us just as if we had never sinned. It redeemed us and enabled forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ speaks that it brought us near to God. The blood of Christ speaks peace between God and man. The blood of Christ has made us clean and acceptable to God. When you worship the Lord at the Lord's Supper every month and you partake of the cup, which is a symbol of Christ's blood, this is what it speaks of that it's given us access to God. The veil has been torn, and we can go right to God. The blood of Christ sanctifies us. The blood of Christ 
ransomed us from our old way of life. It paid the ransom price. The blood of Christ cleansed us from sin. Just in the book of Revelation alone, the blood of Christ enabled forgiveness of our sin and freedom from our sin. The penalty and the power of sin is broken. The blood of Christ redeemed us from the slave market of sin. The blood of Christ cleansed us from sin for righteous living. The blood of Christ made us overcomers over evil and trials in this life. The blood of Christ turned us into Christ followers. This is what the blood of Christ speaks of. These are better things than what Abel cried out for. Amen? These slides will be on the website if you couldn't get all these down. And then lastly, we're going to move through this real quickly. Hold fast because of the consequences of not holding fast. God has judged in the past. We see it in Scripture. And the writer says, see to it that you do not, do not refuse him who is speaking, God who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Moses, if they didn't escape God's wrath and judgment on earth, when Moses, a man, warned them, they're not going to escape when God speaks from heaven. And God is speaking through the pen of the writer. God will most certainly judge those who reject him. They didn't escape when Moses warned them. Much less will anyone escape who turns away, turns away from Christ to go back to Judaism, turns away from Christ to go to anything else for salvation. They will not escape. Those who turn away from Christ when God warns from heaven. God has promised that he will judge. He has promised he'll forgive all who come to Christ, but he promises that he will judge all those who reject Christ. His voice shook the earth then on Mount Sinai, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. It's in the prophets in the Old Testament. He has promised that he will judge. He promised forgiveness, and he gave his son. He followed through with that promise. I have no reason to doubt that he will not follow through with the promise of judgment as well. God will remove from his eternal presence anything tainted by sin. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. God will one day remove from his presence anything tainted by sin. Peter brings this out in his second epistle. God will destroy heaven and earth and create a new heaven and earth untainted by sin that only has righteousness dwelling in it. God offers a perfect eternal inheritance to those who trust in Christ. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Christ's kingdom cannot be shaken because the king of that kingdom cannot be shaken, Jesus Christ. There is this perfect eternal inheritance awaiting all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Gratitude for what Christ has done is a sign of being part of God's kingdom. 
let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. A priestly service would be a better way to translate that. With reverent submission is how you can translate that as well. And awe. Gratitude should characterize us. God has done so much for us, brothers and sisters. Our hearts should overflow with gratitude and appreciation. It should come out of our lips. We should struggle to contain it as if we ever should. Gratitude should be a characteristic. For service to be acceptable, our priestly service to be acceptable, we must show gratitude. The scriptures teaches that every true believer in Jesus Christ is a priest, male and female, every single one. A priest is not someone who wears special clothes or some kind of clerical collar. You can read it yourself in 1 Peter chapter 2, start in verse 5. All believers are priests to God. They can, you can go to God directly. You don't need any man between you and God. Never let God's image escape you, for it will always inspire you. Our God is a consuming fire. The writer has written to them about the Day of Atonement in the past, Leviticus 16, in previous chapters. In Leviticus chapter 9, when they're ready to begin offerings at the tabernacle, they put the sacrifice on the altar and they read that fire comes out from the tent of meeting, the holy place and the holy of holies. Fire comes out, roars across the courtyard, and consumes the offering. God is a consuming fire. In the very next chapter, Aaron, the high priest, two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decide, huh, you know, we're not going to wait for dad to kick the bucket. We're going to perform some of these priestly services, and we're going to do it our way. And they make an incense different from what the Lord had prescribed. And in Leviticus 10, they go to present that to the Lord. And once again, fire comes out of the tent of meeting and consumes Nadab and Abihu. Slays them, burns them up. God is a consuming fire. He finishes his warning with remember God is holy. You can only come his way through Jesus Christ and that God will judge as certainly as he judged Nadab and Abihu. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this glorious picture of yourself. How we thank you that you are the one who enables us to hold fast how we thank you that you are an awesome, magnificent God. How we thank you that even though you are a holy God, you have made a way for us to be accepted in your presence through the offering of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Dear God, we thank you 
for making us your children. We thank you for the inheritance that we have. We pray, dear God, that by your Holy Spirit, for your glory, that our walk will always agree with our talk. That the life that we live will be pleasing to you as we pursue peace with one another and holiness. And we look forward today, today to that day yet future when we will see you face to face, Lord Jesus. Bless us now, we pray. For your name's sake, amen.